louder. From the Black Lodge, it's me, the free will burning, head turning, ass kicking, machismo dripping, master podcasting, mouthpiece of the Southeast, uncontested superstar of the airwaves, and your reigning and defending podcast champion of the world, Brandon A. Lane, bringing you a new edition of the Rants from the Black Lodge podcast. This past May, myself and Fat Tony were gifted this awesome opportunity to not only attend FrankenCon, but also host a live career retrospective and Q&A with Pumpkinhead, Society, and Silent Night, Deadly Night 5 star Brian Bremer. This awesome event was thankfully filmed by friend of the podcast, Andrea Chandler, and after revisiting the footage, I just, I had to make the decision and I stripped the audio and we're going to release it tonight to the awaiting ears of the Rant Army Now, that being said, up front, the audio quality of this episode is not up to our normal snuff. But Brian was such an amazing interview that it would be just an absolute crime not to tough it out and hear him recount his amazing career on the silver screen. He truly was the highlight of FrankenCon for me, and I've heard it from several people in attendance. They feel exactly the same. So pop in your earbuds and crank the volume, but first, here's some messages from our sponsors. Hey, assholes, it's me, Boner the Skeleton, mascot of the Rants from the Black Lodge podcast, here to sell you some shit you probably can't afford. Are you low on cash? That's not a problem. Sell your blood. Sell your children. Go to the jack-off clinic and give them a sperm sample. We don't care how you get the money as long as you give it to us. Would you like a t-shirt? A mug or a sticker to show that you're a true friend and a member of the Rant Army? Well, all you gotta do is go to RantArmy.com. And if you don't buy something, then fuck ya! Watching films is always better with friends, but we're not always so lucky. Until now, thanks to Popcorn Fodder on Tubi, you can see eight films ranging from brilliant to bizarre and everything in between with your host, cult filmmaker and avid movie fan, Henrik Kuto, there to take you on the journey and keep you engaged with insights, trivia, and musings. Featuring films such as The Devil Times Five, Bruce Lee Fights Back, From the Grave, I Bury the Living, and Driller Killer. In the tradition of Elvira, Sven Gulli, and Joe Bob Briggs, we bring you Popcorn Fodder. You can watch all eight episodes completely free when you go to Tubi.com and search Popcorn Fodder, also available on Roku and just about any other way you stream your movies. I look forward to having you all join me for another round of Popcorn Fodder. Find him on Facebook and Instagram over at Mass by Lance. Go order one now, boy!
podcast. We are based yes. Van. the world's greatest retrospective podcast. Thank it's you. Been, it's, it's on the screen, so it has to be fact. And this right here, this is my co-host, sometimes drunk, always, always fat, fat, fat Tony. <laughs> Brandon, is that a good nickname? <laughs> Over the past five years, uh, me and my companion friend here, uh, we've been we've been uh, taking a journey into the depths of cult film and horror. You know, the good grody stuff. Some of the films this gentleman over here has worked on. We're going to be diving into the career of the great Brian Brewer. Now, Brian, uh, first question up. Um, First, I want to say, my friends in the room, he called me a living legend. So, exactly. remember that. It's <laughs> only the truth when we go to dinner. Only, only truth. Only truth. Yeah. Now, on the count of three, I want to hear you guys say "living legend." One, two, three. Living legend. Exactly. Exactly. Um, We're not going to forget this in Key West either. <laughs> career, a really interesting career in film, and I'm going through your IMDb, and there's the things I know, and there's some of the things I don't know. This guy worked on a Tyler Perry film. Several, yeah. And a TV show, that, that's that's so opposite of, you know, the horror genre, which you found this, this wonderful niche in. I'm just curious, when, before you found yourself in, in the, you know, the filmmaking business, was horror on your periphery, or is it something you kind of just fell into? No, interestingly, I mean, I grew up watching these same movies, and I loved, loved them. I would stay at Friday nights with my friends, and sometimes we would do a little something, and we would watch, you know, sometimes not And we would, uh, you know, watch horror movies late at night. Some of you guys have come to the table and said that you found society or Pumpkinhead by going to the video store and getting a bunch of videos with your pals. That's what I did. That was me. But when I started, I went to Pepperdine University and I got a full scholarship at the last minute. I had nowhere to go. And my mother took me to the Southeastern Theater Conference. I auditioned and got a full ride to Pepperdine, which at the time I didn't even realize what that was. And because I was going to go to the University of South Carolina, that's where I'm from, South Carolina, North Carolina. And my dad said, full ride, that's where you're going. <laughs> and I've been acting, I've done theater in school, like a lot of us do, that's how we get started. And, uh, and went there on a full theater and playwriting scholarship, because I had written some plays at the time. Uh, but didn't know what I was getting into at all. Uh, uh, but when I went there, oh boy, okay. Is this a long story? Uh, the first thing I did as part of the scholarship, you have to be in the different plays, and I was in a play called Camelot. I played Mordred in Camelot, one of my favorite roles. He's evil, he's wicked. Uh, and a talent agent was there. That was a benefit of being in Los Angeles. And they asked me to come read for them. I signed with them, the Gage Group. And the, one of the very first auditions they got me was Pumpkinhead. And I remember the agent said, ah, it's a horror movie, kid. Everybody's got to do one. And, you know, at least you don't have to take your pants off. <laughs> okay. Fine, okay. So I went and auditioned. And I went and auditioned for Stan Winston. And I remember it very clearly, and I don't remember a lot of things, but I'll never forget this day. It was in Van Nuys, in a little office building. I didn't know who Stan was, you know, at the time. And uh, we auditioned the scene. Have you seen Pumpkinhead? Mostly, okay. So there's a scene where we're in the old burnout church. And he's like, when a man does something wrong, does something wrong to another man, and call up this thing in his name, whatever. That was the audition scene. And we did the audition, and I had a real southern accent because I'm from North Carolina. 
which is funny. Represent the self, my friend. You know it, baby. And uh, while we're doing the scene, this very intense scene, very spooky scene, it was broad daylight, we're in an office building. Someone in the office next door dropped something. And it scared me so badly that like the scene was great. It, it just happened. It was one of those weird acting moments where like, holy shit, I was terrified. And, uh, and I got the part. And uh, I knew when I read the script that it was more than a horror movie. I knew it. I really did. I thought it was beautiful and eloquent and, and really a, a morality story. Well, anyway, I got the part. And this was in like March or something. It was Academy Award time, whenever they have that. And I was in my apartment in uh, Woodland Hills with my roommates. There were like 12 of us in this apartment. And the Oscar for Best Special Effects goes to Stan Winston for Aliens. And Stan Winston walks up on the stage, and I call my mom in South Carolina. I say, Mom, that's the guy. That's the guy I'm going to do this. I'm doing a movie with that guy. And then, of course, I learned who Stan Winston was. And, he, and, and so, yeah, it wasn't something that I planned. But I think as an actor or a creative person, or, you don't really plan your career. You have goals and you have milestones that you want to try to reach, like get your SAG card, write that book, finish the screenplay. But you never know where it's going to take you. And, uh, and that's how it started. And I fell in love. I fell in love with uh, that whole crew, the whole experience, Tom Woodruff, Stan. They were wonderful people. And, and after that, I started getting a lot of auditions for Silent High Five, Society, and Brian, of course, cast me in a couple of things. Anyway, no, so it wasn't like I didn't go to LA going, I'm going to be uh, uh, in horror movies. I went and said, I'm going to be an actor. So, and of course, you know, I still had my day, I still had school. Um, I had day jobs for a good portion of my career, really until I was up in my early 30s and started doing voiceover work. And that's where I started to, I really, I love voiceover because you don't have to have your picture taken ever. I can work in my underwear from my home. Most of the time I put on pants. But um, I, I really did fall in love with voice acting. So that's been my focus. And then because I was in Atlanta, I just got auditions for Tyler Perry. And at the same time, I opened a comedy theater, Sketchworks Comedy, and it was the first sketch comedy only theater in Atlanta. Ran for 15 years and is still going. Sold it for 10 bucks to the people that run it now, because we were a nonprofit, you know. Um, so comedy was really my thing, and I really and I did comedic plays in school, and that's really where I thought I'd be. Uh, but he hired me to play several, kind of the same character in uh, the movies and the TV shows. I was the token gay, <laughs> and that was fine by me. I loved it; it was really fun. So, and then most recently, I I don't really pursue on camera now because I'm really busy with voiceover, and I work in the talent side and all kinds of things. I think to be successful as a creative, you have to really diversify and know how to do lots of different things. I tell all my acting students, I'm like, write, produce, make your own content. Like, you have to do that. Um, but, but I always thought comedy would be my thing, and I, I just, but, okay, so. If I'm asked for, and I don't mean that like I'm a star, because I'm not, I'm a working actor, absolutely 100%, but I've been around a long time. So sometimes the casting director will say, well, audition for this because I hear you in this. And I never turn that down. Because my father told me once that the way he was successful was he learned everything he could about whatever he was trying to do. And then he walked through every door that opened, no matter what. Now, it may not be for you what's on the other side of that door, but you got to walk through the door. So if I'm asked for, I always audition. 
So I, I do like a movie every two years, you know? The last one I did, I really want you guys to see it. It's non-genre, but it's the sweetest little movie if you have kids. It's called Permanent, and it's with Rain Wilson and Patricia Arquette. And it's basically about this little girl who, right before her first day of junior high school, gets the worst permanent of her life. The worst ever in my beauty salon. And that's a comedy. So I really love comedy. Um, I'm dying to do, to do another genre pick. I'm dying to do another movie in our world. Uh, and I think now that these movies are getting so much attention, that probably will be something that I... Uh, I have connection. I know you so, anyway, long answer. Oh, uh, no, please. Then you make my job extra easy. You know, yeah. Just uh, spill out like a water fountain. Uh, I'm so high on adrenaline and coffee right now. <laughs> this is overwhelming. It's really amazing. I really appreciate all you guys. And I got to say that. Thank you all for coming to talk to me. Yeah, give yourself. Thank you. Yeah. So, first up on the dock, and you alluded to it, Pumpkinhead. Legendary film. Working with Stan Winston, Academy Award winning you know, special effects artist. However, this was his first venue into working as a director. Um, I'm just curious if you could maybe speak upon uh, what it was like working with a first time director. Well, the complications, or was it easy going? Well, as a first time director, working with a first time film actor, it was my very first movie, my very first time ever on film. So I didn't think of him as a first time director, but he was. He was an actor's director. He loved us. If you remember in the movie, there's the first scene where you see me and my sisters and brothers, including Blossom, my girl, who did Beaches right after Pumpkinhead. Yeah. Um, she's sweet, she's wonderful. Um, and we did that scene, and it was my first day on any kind of film set. And it was really overwhelming the cameras, and we're on location, and 100 people. And in the scene, we just do the keep away from Pumpkinhead unless you're tired of living. His enemies are mostly dead. He's mean and unforgiving. Laugh at him and you're undone, but it's an awful fashion. Venture, he considers fun. Give him a round of applause. And since you're. Chills. You gave me chills, man. Then multiply it. It's electrifying. And then in the scene, Cynthia Bain goes, Stop it. Stop it. You're scaring him. And that was the scene. Well, we did the scene, and I was nervous. Oh my God, I was a nervous wreck. Nervous wreck, and uh, did not feel that I'd done well. I'm sure I did, I'm always very self-critical, but in my mind, I was like, oh my God, I was awful. Uh, and that night, I went home to my apartment in Woodland Hills, again, the one with eight people, and I was up half the night thinking about how I'd just blown my chance at anything. And I know it sounds terrible, because I wasn't that bad. I wasn't that bad, but I had an idea. I decided to ask Stan if he would reshoot the scene with me. I did. I had balls back then. I, would, I don't know if I do that. I probably would do that today. <laughs> I said, I, we got there. We're still in the same location, right? And so the whole setup's there, all the same actors. And I said, Stan, I had an idea for that scene we shot yesterday. Now, this is really brazen. You, you know, you got to be careful about this. And, he, and he's so kind. He goes, okay, what is it? I'm like, okay, what if... Tom the kid, and she says, stop it, and I walk up and I threaten her, and jump at her. He goes, oh, I love it, let's shoot it. I'm like, oh, 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 really? <laughs> so, so we basically redid it. Redid, sorry, the entire thing. We got a bad issue. We basically redid the... Hey, look, it's a swap out. 
Hello. There we go. We basically redid the entire scene, and it ended up being what it was. And it actually, that shows you what kind of director he was, because he was interested in character development and in showing subtle little things about the character. And that gave me permission to be creative, which for an actor in a director-actor relationship, nothing better. I knew he trusted me, I knew he trusted my ideas, and I trusted him. And I've worked with a lot of really cool directors, and all the really great directors that I've gotten to work with were that way. And it set the stage for the whole movie. There were lots of things in the movie. The bedroom scene with De Devon and Dessa, which is so funny. My very well-endowed 12-year-old sister. <laughs> yeah, um, we, we were given permission to do little things, little nuances. And I think that approach to the movie is what made the movie what it is. So he's a great director. I do remember one very clear image of him the night we shot the church scene before nightfall. Uh, that film was made by the De Laurentiis Entertainment Group, Dino De Laurentiis. That's who made it. And the executives were always on stand about budget, time, budget, time. And I remember one scene, I remember one day, one day, two guys in suits and him were off in the distance and they were just yelling at him and he was yelling at them. And he said at the time that he would never direct again, that that was it. Uh, it was too stressful. Somebody told me it gave him a spastic cold, and I don't think it was him, but somebody told me that. Anyway, it just, you know, it was very stressful. And sure enough, he did Monster Squad right after Pumpkinhead, but he didn't really, he, he went back to creating those beautiful monsters. Because he was the, he, he was the living legend. And you know, you know, he passed a couple of years ago, and it's very sad, because he, he, he took us to his house before the film to get to know all the cast members. He had a big rap party at his house, beautiful. He had what looked like Snow White's house on crack <laughs> in Laurel Canyon. It was a thatched roof, beautiful, like a uh, Tudor-style mansion. It was like a fairy tale house with a door and everything. Anyway, he, he was wonderful. Yeah, he was just great. I'm gonna cry. I'm not gonna cry. I'm not gonna cry. <laughs> Now you alluded to something that, that is absolutely key to the film, and, and that's the, the creation of just the wonderful monsters, not just in Pumpkinhead, but it's on down the line. Stan Winston, you know, one of the greatest special effects artists ever, and I think the crowning achievement in terms of horror probably is the Pumpkinhead monster. What was it like seeing this monstrosity of a thing for the first time on set? Hilarious. <laughs> it was cool. I mean, it was great. You know, back then there were no digital effects, so it was all practical. It was sculpted. It was art. If you see on my table, the mask. I mean, he had made like 12 masks, I think, because progressively as the movie goes on, it starts to look more and more like Lance, you know? And so there was the, the monster, and then it starts to look like Lance. Made all those. Some of them were fully articulated animatronic. Some of them were just, uh, what do they call them, Work working masks, and then the hero mask would be the one that could move. They don't do that anymore, it's all digital. I mean, you know, practical effects are were all the movies that I was in, and it, was su it is such an art form. And it's an art form now, you just have different tools. But Tom Woodruff was in the suit, but that, it was great. It was like, you saw the monster and you went, this is awesome, it made us scary. Then it became hilarious because you work with this thing over and over and over and Tom Woodruff is in the suit. He's the greatest guy in the world. Next time I do a show, I'll, come, I'll bring my scrapbook and put it at the table because I have some great still shots of Tom. Now, so he was in the suit, in the harness, in the suit. His feet actually stop where the knees of the monster are. And then the rest of that is, is puppetry. 
and they have him on a wire, and they're moving the puppets. And his face was actually, is actually in the neck of the creature. And in some of the scenes, if you look closely enough, you can see the eye holes. Very, very tiny. Well, so when we were shooting, what they would do if I was with the monster, or like the scene where the monster lifts Jeff East up on the motorbike and throws him, Tom is actually in his tennis shoes where the monster's knees are up on this big ramp. So I have pictures of Pumpkinhead in Nikes <laughs> at the knee, you know, because they're only shooting him from here up. The, my favorite thing, people ask me a lot, like, was it scary? Like, were you really scared? And the answer is no, yes, because you're an actor and your job is to truly feel that emotion. Otherwise, you guys won't. But some of it are tricks of the camera. My favorite scene for this reason is because is the scene where Pumpkinhead comes into the cabin to find me because I've gotten in the way. And anybody that gets in the way, it's got to kill them too, right? That's what Haggis says. And he comes in and I'm in the closet. You guys remember this scene? I'm in the closet. And he looks in the closet and I'm down here and he acts like he doesn't see me, right? And then he turns like he's going to leave and then he jumps back and gets me and you see me screaming. Well, that was shot from behind me. So they took the walk. This was shot where they shot Little House on the Prairie on the Newhall Ranch. And so all those cabins were Mr. Ingalls' cabins, the doctors and all that stuff. The barn is Mr. Olson's barn, right? So, they, so those cabins, you could remove the walls to shoot camera work. So this, this was shot about 3 o'clock in the morning. We had two cases of jolt soda to keep us ourselves awake and, and they took the back wall of the closet out and shot from behind me so that they could feature the monster when he came in and you see me screaming from like this angle you see and actually the whole crew had gotten punch drunk we were all laughing hysterically including tom so the suit would be jiggling and stan would be like the suit's jiggling tom and that made us laugh even more so when you see me screaming i'm actually laughing hysterically and you can if you know it you can tell because it's all but a big smile on my face, but it looks like a scream. You know, it looks, it looks the same. So that's what it was like. And Tom is wonderful. Uh, he's, I saw somebody brought something to the table that's signed by him. And I know he does few shows, but if you ever get a chance to meet Tom Woodruff, he, he is the practical man in a lot of the monster suits in all kinds of movies that you might not know. So look him up and, and you'll see his creature work as a sound. So in speaking about the creature, uh, we actually have an extra special thing on the docket. Mr. Brian Bremer has been kind enough to autograph a 1999 Farland... Oh, don't drop your microphone. Well, I just did. It's off. We're doing a silent auction for this. Uh, and 100% uh, of the proceeds are going to the Ronnie James Dio Stand Up and Shout Cancer Fund. Yeah. Um, I'm sure uh, those among you, cancer has touched your life in, in some way, but this is an excellent way to give back and hopefully we can uh, put a small dent in this horrible plague that's upon mankind and get a nice piece of... Uh, yeah, you can't find that thing anymore. I'm surprised you have it. Well, it's going to hopefully go home with somebody today. So at any point, you want to check that out, uh, Fat Tony will be around. And I also want to invite all of you, if you have questions about Pumpkinhead, raise your hand and he'll come to you and uh, we'll, we'll make that happen. I want to say real quick, thank you guys. Thank you guys for doing that. Oh, that, that yeah, yeah. That's good. Thank you. Clap for me. Clap for him. I, 
he's, yeah. he's the one that gives it value. We're just the vessel to make it get, you know, get from point A to point pumpkin. Y'all are not going to be able to live with me anymore. <laughs> Tomorrow I get to go back and be regular Brian. Well, today you're a superstar. Oh, you're sweet. Um, so living legend. Living right. legend. Right. Count of three. One, two, three. Living legend. All right. No, very, no, very no, good. No, 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 no way. Give me a second. Oh. Do that one more time. <laughs> God, y'all. Thank you for playing. All right. One, two, three. Living legend. Very good. Thank you. <laughs> Now, uh, one, one more thing about Pumpkinhead yeah. before we uh, continue on, and because I actually have a little story I would like to tell about Pumpkinhead. Marvelous. At what point did you realize, when, when Pumpkinhead came out, that you were sort of solidified in a piece of pop culture history? Years later. You know, when it was first released, they released it in the theaters. I don't think many or any of you are old enough to remember that. But it came out in the theaters, and it was in the theaters for two weeks, and it bombed. I think people thought the name was silly. So I remember in LA, for sure, casting did not respect it at all. Uh, and that was a thing. And I think people thought it was something silly, something crazy. It did really well in those two weeks, but for some reason they pulled it. They pulled it. And I think that might have been when De Laurentiis' group went bankrupt. Anyway, they pulled it, and MGM UA bought it, and then it sat on their shelf for years, at least four or five years. And then somehow HBO picked it up. I don't know if you guys remember this. HBO, <laughs> no. Uh, HBO picked it up and started running it and suddenly it started finding its audience and then the Sci-Fi Channel picked it up. And that's when it really, and that was probably six or seven years after, excuse me, after we made the movie. It was everywhere all of a sudden. So that's funny how that kind of thing happens. It's like society. Like, society has just recently, some of you guys I've talked to have, everybody says, oh, I saw that when I was a kid. I'm like, what kind of kid were you that was? <laughs> how, how, how old were you? Where was your mama? Anyway, um, you know, so a lot of you has, have seen it and known it for a long time, but that film is just recently getting a lot of traction, which has surprised me. So they take a while, if it's not like your big mainstream blockbuster or whatever, um, but it was, it's been several years now, but I remember the first time someone asked me to sign something. That was a long time ago. Um, but it was a long time after the movie was made. And even, I've got to tell you, honestly, I just started doing shows last year. Peter Valderrama is here, my manager. Hardest working in entertainment. Yes, yeah. give him a hand. Woo! Yeah. He, um, he approached me, and, and I was like, ah, Peter. No, but who's going to care? No, no, nobody's going to care. And so this is only my second show. So I am so grateful to all you guys and so uh, overwhelmed, just overwhelmed by your love and support and your love of the films. Um, I really am. But like, so today, I would say it's certainly the first time in my life that anyone has called me a living legend, except I broke that cherry. Except maybe my mother in a very sarcastic way. Oh, you're a living legend, aren't you? Um, so really, it's, it's an ongoing realization of how many people that and these other movies have touched and that it's become a part of something that they grew up with. A couple of people today have said, I grew up watching you, and I'm like, oh, you're Walt Disney. <laughs> like you're twisting Walt Disney. It's crazy. So really, it's, it's only recently, you know? And I've been getting, people send me stuff to sign for the last several years, a lot, a lot of Silent Night 5, people will send me stuff. 
Uh, so I know that it's out there. Anyway. Okay. Now okay. you you well <laughs> in in spades, my friend. Uh, you you made a point there to say that no one was old enough here to have seen Pumpkinhead in the theater. Now, Laura, you may not know this, and he's absolutely correct because it did get pulled from theaters. It had a limited run in '88, but then it got a small release in '89. 1989 in January was the first movie I ever saw in the theater. Wow! What? Yes. Yeah. How old were you? I was Too six. Young. And where was your mother? <laughs> My mother was none the wiser. However, I had a kooky grandmother. I won't get into the, the ins and outs about it, but my grandmother, when she would be tasked with you know watching me, uh, for whatever reason, movies would shut me the hell up. So she took me to Pumpkinhead, and I I shut up. I didn't speak for a couple of days, in fact, because we. Where, I don't know how, get it, just, uh, who's from Tennessee around here? They're just about everybody on the general area. But I grew up in Morristown, Tennessee, home of the Evil Dead, the original. And I saw this in the theater there. And my grandmother lived in what's called Hawkins County. It's called Overhome. This is, you know, dirt roads and, you know, scary backwoods hillbillies. So the whole ride home after after watching this after watching this movie, my grandmother, being just a loving, caring person, she is. Pumpkinhead's gonna get you. Wow! <laughs> you literally have to go up Clinch Mountain and then down Clinch Mountain, and it's just nothing but dead trees and just it's so creepy. And the moon was full, and I remember laying my head to rest that night, and my grandmother. Waited 20 minutes after I fell asleep, and she said, She's still alive. My grandmother is still alive, but I'm going to wait till that last moment, that last breath comes to her. So that's, that's my Pumpkinhead story. But I, I love Pumpkinhead. I think it's an amazing film, and you, you touched on it with just the little nuances, the characters, and stuff. It, it's a, a film that has transcended the media, and I'm glad that you're getting your just due from it. Anybody got any questions about Pumpkinhead you want to direct to, Mr. Brimmer, before we move on? All right, we'll move on to the, our next film. Oh, shit, we're going film by film. <laughs> Some of the highlights. Okay. Um, a film that has, as he stated, has become quite popular over the past few years, and it's it's a movie that changed my life the first time I saw it. A little film called Society. <laughs> Woo! forever. <laughs> Dive into the new action-packed thriller, Mr. Black. This is a story about a mafia hitman, Mr. Black whose latest target is nothing like he's had to deal with before. Mr. Valentino is a man that's into the dark arts, who calls on the Grim Reaper to kill Black. However, the spell fails to be fully successful, as he is still murdered. Now, Death himself is pursuing Mr. Black relentlessly. Now who can Black turn to for help? Who can stop a curse like this? Get Mr. Black on Amazon Books, or as a digital download on Kindle. So the overwhelming comment when people have come to you guys and come to the table today has been, man, I'm a big fan of society. That film is messed up. <laughs> <laughs> okay, first question. 
this is the obvious one. When you read the script, what was your reaction to this? <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. I, I really couldn't tell you. It, none of us really knew. First of all, Brian Yasna is a genius and also one of the sweetest men ever. He's not at all strange or odd or, or off-putting. He's a lovely man and you wonder, where do these things come from? That's like Stephen King. I met Stephen King. No, you met Stephen King. Stephen King, sorry. I had met Stephen King. Chuck met Stephen King. Chuck works at the Alliance Theater and Stephen did a play there. But anyway, uh, he's the sweetest man ever and you go, where does all this stuff come from? Brian's the same way. Read the script, um, it wasn't that shocking or strange to me. Again, when you read a script, you're approaching it from an acting point of view. So what I'm focused on is Martin Petrie and how am I gonna play this and who is he? Um, what is he since they're not quite human and yet they've lived here forever, you know, long, they predate mankind. All of that fun stuff, that's fun. So I was really more about the fun of it. And then as we got into making it, a lot of us, you know, because you do different scenes and you kind of forget, you're kind of living in the moment of the scene. And a lot of us really didn't understand what we were making. I mean, a lot of us really didn't. And then we got to that last scene. And we were all like, what the fuck? We were all dripping. And then we were wondering. Dripping in methicil and going, judge what is this? So we really weren't sure. It, for a lot of us, it was strange, and it was just a weird world. It was a fun world, though, because we got to play the ultra-rich, you know, and that is just fun to pretend. Um, and the sets were really fun, and then, of course, Screaming Matt George and the effects, which and Nick Benson is just like, out of this world. So um, anyway, when I read the script, I thought, oh, this is cool. I mean, it definitely felt like it was deeper than just a, a schlock film. It didn't. It felt intelligent somehow. I, I felt I could bring intelligence to the character and, you know, it was fun. But none of us really understood because you don't know what the whole picture's gonna look like. That's the direct, director's job. Even when you shoot scene by scene by scene, the way the director and the editor put it together, the way the cinematographer shoots it, that's what makes the story of film, right? And so, when I saw it first, for the first time, I was shocked. I loved the color. Um, I loved that it was like 90210 on crack. You know, and then we were playing on that whole, you know, the kids trend. Um, and then the last scene, I just remember watching it and that, and that music, that, that, that almost carnival, on our road together. You know, the other's like, this is weird. <laughs> and that's what I thought. I thought it was very strange. And, and when they, when it was first released, uh, they would not release it in the United States. I don't know how many of you guys know, guys know this story. They wouldn't rate it. That last scene, and this is funny because when you watch it now, it does stick with you, but that manager has it, he's got to take a call. I, it's paramount on the phone, Peter. Anyway, he's always doing that. Um, where was I? Oh, Oh yeah, so they wouldn't release it. They wouldn't give it a rating. They were gonna go X, they didn't, and it's, isn't that weird? Because nowadays, the stuff that's out there. And so it never got released theatrically here. It was released in the United Kingdom and became the number one science fiction film in the UK that year, where that blew my mind. I was like, I should've gotten paid a lot more for that. <laughs> but that was cool. I mean, that was just really cool. But if you think about it, it has a very English sensibility. 
And I think that that's because Brian is a very international director. He thinks globally. He's not locked into uh, any one specific area or region. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, when I read it, again, you're reading it as an actor, and you're just like, okay, I gotta tell this story. And you're really just focused on telling the story. And then even after, you move on to the next thing and the next thing, and of course you, and uh, what you can't predict, and I don't think that Brian could predict or, is, or cares about, and you can't really care about this as an artist or, or a filmmaker, is, I mean, you want it to be liked, you want people to see it because it's your art, but you can't predict how the audience will react to it. There's no way. There's no way. So the reaction to it, which has been relatively recent on a large scale, uh, has been really, really surprising. And I'm actually really, really happy that people like it. Oh, I don't know if like is the right word. No, <laughs> I, I think love would be the correct okay. term. I yeah. love society, and well, I'm, I'm not so the bad. only one. In fact, uh, I reached out to a guy you're well familiar with by the name of Brian Usna. And, and yeah, he's actually been on uh, the podcast before. Oh, wonderful. And um, he had a very nice quote about you that I'm going to read to everybody here. And forgive me if I misspeak. I don't have my glasses. I'm trying to look younger. Working with Brian Brimmer was a great experience. He played the duplicitous. That's a big, that's a $10 word right there. Petrie, in my directorial debut society, I was so impressed by his performance that I. When I was casting the Reanimator sequel, Bride of Reanimator, and it appeared briefly that Jeffrey Combs was going to be unable to reprise his iconic role of Herbert West, I encouraged Brian to read for the part. That's right. Of course, Jeffrey Combs was finally able to come back to the, the poison didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it would have been great to have seen Brian Brimmer's version of West. In fact, Brian more closely resembles the character as described by H.P. Lovecraft in the Herbert West Reanimator stories. A few years later, we cast Brian in the role of Mickey Rooney's son, Pino, as in like Pinocchio, there's some, we'll talk about that in a minute. Silent Night, Daily Night 5, The Toymaker, and he was terrific. If you haven't seen Brian in that film, I strongly encourage you to. What a strange and creepy character he created. Brian is the real deal of acting. So he dropped, he drops a bomb right there. No kidding. I'd forgotten that he asked me to read for that. I do remember that now. I'm glad Jeffrey did. I mean, you know, I would never want to replace Jeffrey Combs, but you know, something happened. <laughs> um, that's amazing. I have never heard him say that, and and that's really humbling. Exclusive, right now. Right that's now. super humbling. Thank you, guys. Obviously, you know, Jeffrey has his niche carved out in like oh, horror, yeah. horror history, but yeah. Um, but if. I mean, if the role had been given to you, like, uh, what, what would have been your, you know, source of inspiration when you went to the books, or would you have brought something, you know, sort of unique to it? Like, what would have been your process? At that time in my 20s, I probably wouldn't have known enough to read a book. So I would have probably just approached it, well, you know, and I know that character so well, it's so iconic, so I would have tried to put honor it. I think, yeah, probably going to the book. And I gotta tell you honestly, it, with Brian, I wouldn't have been worried about it. He would have guided me through it. I was very young, and Brian was very uh, hands-on as well, very helpful. And so, and that would be fun. I think I had a dream that I played that character or something. It just feels right, you know? Um, and I think I would have brought a lot of Martin Petrie to it, but maybe Martin Petrie grown up and uh, more desperate. 
and uh, and uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Wow. I, I mean, he obviously he sees or saw something in me that was enough of a similarity that I think it would have been a, a natural fit. But I would have played it. I would have honored the book. Yeah, I would have honored I, I, I think it would have been tremendous. I mean, obviously, history played out the way it did. Here's the thing, though. Yeah. H.P. Lovecraft's works with you know, Herbert West is in the public domain. So, yeah. I mean, if the chance popped up now for you to play sort of a, a different version of Herbert West, oh, yeah. would that be something you'd be interested in? Oh, like the multiverse? It's the multiverse of Reanimator. You know, like where there were three Spider-Mans? That kind of tripped me out. <laughs> yeah, uh, oh yeah, absolutely. I wouldn't turn that down. All right, I do, guys, I do that right now. Yeah. Hashtag Brian Bremer Reanimator. Get that shit trending. Trending, trending now. <laughs> Question the circumstance would have to be very right. You know, I would not, I would not take anything from another actor. That's just not, you know. But if Jeffrey wasn't going to do it for some reason, and they were reinventing it and wanted to do a different angle on it, I would. If if he was not doing it, but he would have to be in it. You know what I'm saying to honor the the franchise. So while we're talking about that, can we maybe get a peek into the universe where you played Herbert West? Maybe just a little sample? Oh, no, 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 any more questions? That's a great question. Oh, we got a question over here. We're prepared to do it. Where? Oh, right here. Come, come. I can reach across to you. I'll have to rewatch the movie and get some lines, and then I'll create something for you. I need a script. I mean, I'm a good improv for, but I need a script for that. What was it like working with Screaming Matt George? Awesome. He was crazy. He was nuts. He's hyper, super creative. Um, and just a genius. It's funny you say it because I was actually thinking, um, I've been taking walks on my breaks from the table, and I was thinking about the fact that he was a practical effects magician uh, and what an incredible artist he was from just the sculpturing. So, yeah, so, remember The Giver? Did you ever see The Giver? Yes. When I was working with him on Silent Night 5, he had models of The Giver in his studio and he was explaining it to me very particularly and meticulously. Um, and I actually wondered, I wonder what, I don't even, he's still around, he's still working, and I wonder with the tools he has now, what kind, because he's not the kind of person that's going to say, uh, poo -poo. He, he was the kind of person that's going to embrace all the tools and begin, and I bet uh, he's probably happy to have these amazing tools. I even thought, I wonder what that shunting scene would have been like with the very good digital effects that we have now. And I know that seems to remove some of the craftsmanship of it, but I just wonder, like, because it doesn't really, you know, that's still a skill. Yep. Um, but he was delightful. He was funny, kind of quiet. He'd giggle a lot. <laughs> to make the suit for Pino, of course, I had to do a full body cast, and I asked them to carve it a little, muscle it up a little. But I had no penis. <laughs> so, you know, anyway, um, and so I've spent a lot of time with him. That took a long time to make the body cast and the face that came off and all that stuff. So he was wonderful. Uh, that's a good transition right there to Silent Night, Daily Night Five. One more question over here. One, 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 one transition. You, you move in position and then I'll... Thank you for sharing. 
Um, Silent Night, Deadly Night 5 uh, is, is a strange, strange movie. Yeah. Show of hands, who, who's seen Silent Night, Deadly Night 5? Okay, good. See it, see it, see it. It's a good one. All right. Oh, I just had one more society question. Oh, yes. I, whenever I was a, a, a teenager, I found the movie in the early 90s when I, I watched, uh, there was this VHS of Stephen King's Masters of Horror that shows the yeah. scene in it where you see ass face, and it's like, well, I don't know what this movie is. Oh, but, I got ass face. <laughs> what I wanted to ask you was okay. that scene when everybody's in there and the big orgy and all of that or whatever. What was going through your mind when that scene was being filmed? <laughs> Absolutely freaked out. <laughs> no, in, in the moment, it was really fun to watch. It was fascinating because, you know, it's a series of shots, of course. It's not a continuous yeah. thing, and so... Screaming George would come in and they have the glue and those face when the face is stretched That's a prosthetic that everybody had on their faces and so he'd have to attach it very specifically uh, It was odd It was odd and it was it, it, that was a moment where as an actor it was slightly disturbing Because the the lights the smoke, but then from a technical point of view it was filled with smoke and we were drenched in methicillin which I don't know if you know, but this is the same ingredient they put in McDonald's milkshakes to give it that texture. It's a clear, viscous liquid, and it is freezing cold. And we're all in our underwear. If you haven't seen it, you must. Um, um, and so really, you're cold, and you're very tired, and it's smoky. And so there comes a point where, honestly, you're just ready for it to be done. Uh, I remember when I walked in and saw the giant sculpture of like the final shot when everyone is merged together and that's one great big sculpture and then actors would get inside of it and pop their faces out in certain places. That was at 6 a.m. And we're like, wow. Midnight, we're like, hmm. So you get to the point where it's just, you know, you're working, but it was quite impressive. To walk in and see. I have to tell one quick story, and I don't know how much time we have, but I just have to tell this story about, your story. about the butt face guy. Yeah. You know, it, that's uh, the father. Yeah. I, I, his name escapes me on this bit, but he was in the movie. Well, there was a horror convention. So I actually have done another convention years ago. It was not San, it was in San Diego, but I, it could have been Comic Con, but I can't remember. But um, Brian called me. And he said that the actor who actually played Buttface wasn't available, and they really wanted to have Buttface at the convention. And I, they paid me. And of course, as an actor, at that time especially, who needs to eat, I'm like, sure. <laughs> so I was Buttface at the convention. <laughs> and I was on my knees all day, because there's a table here. And Buttface is sitting up, butt out on the table, and my head is popping through the anus. You guys haven't seen this yet. Oh, listen. I won't say it was a low point, but I will say this. Clive Barker was in the booth next door. And Brian says, you gotta come meet Clive. Come on. I'm like, oh. So, in the costume, they take me over to meet Clive Barker, and I'll never forget the look on his face. Oh. That's when I got to meet Clive Barker. Put him in your movie. Never did. All right, but we're running uh, short on time. We don't want to, we don't, no, you're, you're fine. 
You're, you're absolutely fine. We're, we don't want to tread on the uh, dinners of death uh, panel that we're going to be doing with uh, John Dugan. Uh, we're going to transition real quickly to Silent Night, Daily Night 5. Okay. And there was a great deal of controversy surrounding this series, so before we get to 5, we've got to kind of take a trip back to 1984. Does anybody know the, the story of, yeah, I mean, a few of you know. So, a little film comes out in like November of 1984, and it does gangbuster business for about two weeks, and it gets pulled from theaters because, you know, mothers being mothers, Karens they call them these days, and that film got pulled, and it did well on VHS, but it spurred this whole thing of like the outrage of, you know, slasher films or the degradation of, of society. And this charge was led by a fellow by the name of Mickey Rooney. You guys know Mickey Rooney, one of the great legends of screen of, of the day? And he had this quote, How dare they? I'm all for the First Amendment, but don't give me Santa Claus with a gun going to kill someone. The scum who made that movie should be run out of town. Now, I want that in every movie. Less than a decade later, he decided, I need some money, and I want to be in Sally Night, Deadly Night 5. So, please, tell us about working with Mickey Rooney, and in particular that fight scene, because that is just cinematic gold. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Um, I didn't know that. Uh, so thank you for educating me. Uh, and I know we don't have a lot of time, and I have a lot of Mickey Rooney stories. First of all, you know, I knew who he was, obviously being a theater student, a film student, and I was like, what? Uh, and he was wonderful, just wonderful. Uh, he was super generous, really giving, and he never learns his lines. No, he has a photographic memory. He's done 177 films, and he said, I never learned my line, just give me the scene. So they give him the scene right before we shoot, he does this. Okay. And spot on. Didn't, didn't improvise, didn't miss a word. He literally had a photographic memory. He said, I never, I don't want it to get stale. If, if, you, if you rehearse and rehearse and rehearse and rehearse, the spontaneous, the spontaneity goes. And in film, I do believe, you know, it, you capture these very real moments when you're filming something that sometimes aren't repeatable. It's more behavior than rehearsed performance. And I thought that was fascinating. I had to, I learned my lines. I was like, mm -hmm. Um, and he was a nut, man. He was a nut. He talked about Judy Garland, Judy Garland, Judy Garland, Judy Garland. <laughs> and I was like, keep talking. Every day at lunch, because he had just written the book. And Lana Turner, and he talked a lot about the old times. My favorite Mickey Rooney story is the fight scene, when we run down into the basement. It's gold. So we're not really in a basement. We're actually at stage level. And they built stairs up to a catwalk. And Mickey and I, Mickey, Mickey and I, he signed a book for my grandma, and I'll forever love him, because she was a huge fan. I saw him, and I still have the book, because she passed away. But uh, he and I were on this catwalk, and on action, we're supposed to throw open the door and run down into the basement. Again, that's at stage level. And the catwalk was really rickety, and they had a lot of insurance on Mickey Rooney. Right? A lot, they had to buy a lot of insurance. Maybe. I think he only worked a week on the film, to be honest, maybe seven days, and he made like 40 grand. Which back then was a lot of money for, it's still a lot of money for seven days work. Yeah. But he did it for the money. But I tell you, he did it for the money, but he was 100% pro. And he makes, you know, he performs. He's genuinely scary in the movie. Yeah. You've seen so we're up on the catwalk and it's very rickety and it moves. So you gotta be careful up there. And he goes, watch this. And he starts tap dancing. <laughs> and the whole catwalk starts doing this. 
and the, the uh, assistant director, the first AD, runs up, Mr. Rudy, Mr. Rudy, stop, could, could, could you stop that, please? <laughs> that was great. We laughed and laughed, and we did it again, and every time we went up there, we'd do something to make it look like he was going to fall and scare everybody. That was fun. I, I had the best time in that role, and I really loved auditioning for it. You know, I had to audition for Brian, even though I'd worked for him before, and of course, and I remember rehearsing for the audition in my friend Heather's house, and I took a broomstick, and I shoved it down the back of my shirt and into my blue jeans so that I had to walk like this, and then I tried to walk as naturally as possible, because you're not supposed to know, right? It has to be very subtle, the way he moves, the way he thinks. That was fun. So like with Herbert West, I have to like figure out my approach to him too, but that's, you're making me want to do another movie. Uh, that was fun. Give him a round of applause. That was So the wonderful thank you for saying that. That that is also the wonderful thing about our genre. You can open a door in the floor and go to Neverland. I mean, your imagination is your only limitation, whether you're writing it, watching it, or performing it. So I really fell in love with it. That was really the most fun. It's a lot more fun than you know. Would you like some coffee, sir? Okay, here right back. Although that's good work too. You know, I mean, listen, we only scratched the surface. I mean, this guy's done some incredible stuff. Work with Toby Hooper on Spontaneous Combustion. I mean, that, that exploding scene is cinematic venue. And that was a great time. And uh, we're gonna we're gonna wrap this up. Uh, thank you so much for coming out. Uh, but I want you to tell one more story, and then we're going to say goodbye. Okay. But I, I don't think you guys realize that we're in the presence of a great musician here. Oh no. <laughs> is, there a, is there a story about perhaps the 1996 Olympics you can tell us? Well, yes. How in the world did you know this? I did my research. Okay. Well, when I was in Los Angeles as an actor, a bunch of actors and I and some very good musicians formed a group called Elijah Zoo. I think my partner, Robert, music partner, actually was trying to say Elysium, like Elysium Fields. And he came up with this, like, Elijah Zoo. What the hell? Okay. And we wrote some very beautiful music. We smoked way too much pot to ever make an album, so, you know. But we all lived in L.A. and decided that we're done. We're serious musicians now. We're done with acting. We're, we're, we don't have to live in L.A. anymore. It's a tough city. And so we moved to Atlanta specifically because my family was all in this area, and I hadn't seen them for years and years regularly. And the Olympics were coming, and we moved here with the goal of playing the 96 Olympics. Well, we came to Atlanta, we played out in Los Angeles, and we were doing pretty good. And I think if we stayed there, we might have gone further with opportunities, but we moved, whatever. Left everything in LA, moved here to Atlanta. Uh, and we played out a lot, started getting popular there. Uh, of course, we weren't gonna play at the Olympics, like we didn't have a chance in hell, right? We, didn't, we were playing like local bars and clubs and had a little following going. The night before we performed at the Olympics, we got a call from a company called Jupiter Management and they said, we've had somebody back out of the Samsung Expo, and we want you guys to play the Olympics tomorrow night. True story. And we were, and we were just about to break up. We were, we, were, we were talking about it. We're like, okay, wow, uh, we did it. The power of visualization. Sometimes it'll take a long, long time, but if you really visualize it and set your mind to it, look what happens. So, the, I think that was a couple of days before, obviously. The night before we played, Richard, Richard Jewell bombed the Olympics. Yeah, so we played the Samsung Expo, 
to four people. And then we broke up. And I was like, okay, this is a sign. But hey, you know, we did it. That's an incredible story. You, you kind of have your moment in history on a, a multitude of levels. Let's give yeah, thank you the one, two, three, living What an absolute thrill this event was. May 14th, 2022. A day that will live in infamy, the birth. The seed was planted, and now it has sprouted a wonderful monstrosity. Yeah, that's right. Next year, 2023, Bride of Frankencon and Rants from the Black Lodge podcast is going to be right back there again. Well, we don't have the details hammered out. Don't know exactly who we're going to be interviewing and doing another one of these career retrospectives with, or multiple people possibly. But we'll be back, and I can't thank the guys involved enough Richard, Matt, Corey, and everybody else that is applicable. You built something that is absolutely spectacular, and it came from hard work, determination, passion, and those things. They get a thumbs up from me, buddy, and a special thumbs up to Brian Bremer, instantly one of my all-time favorite people. I cannot say enough positively about this man. I don't care if you have to fashion a canoe out of a tree log and swim across the Atlantic, get to a con where this man is at, and please tell him that the Rants from the Black Lodge podcast sent you to him. We'll be back later in this month with an episode of Rants After Dark with longtime technical advisor to the podcast, Jason Davis, making his podcast debut, and we're going to do something a little differently. Pee-wee's Big Adventure. It's definitely got some scary moments in it, got some heartwarming comedy, and we can't wait to talk about it. Please stay tuned for that. Till then, subscribe to the podcast on one of the many platforms we're available on including iTunes and Stitcher, Google Play, you know, all of them. We're, we're everywhere. And please stop by our homepage at JuicyKruger.com, buy a t-shirt or a mug from our web store at RantArmy.com, and for the love of Cthulhu, hop on to Twitter, give us a follow. Thank you so much, and we'll be back later in the month. Till then, Rant Army, keep marching.